From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. You've heard it before. Quitters never win, and winners never quit. Play the music. But wait a second. What if quitters do win? In order to succeed, you're going to have to quit the things that aren't worth pursuing. This is Annie Duke. I'm Annie Duke, lapsed academic, former professional poker player, consultant in the decision-making space, cognitive scientist. Actually, I should say no longer lapsed academic because I'm back at Penn now, which is where I started my academic career. And I write books. Including a book that just came out called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. When successful entrepreneurs tell their stories, you know, they often speak of perseverance. Things were hard, but they did not give up, et cetera, et cetera. It's an inspiring message, but it can also be misleading. Because as Annie says there, in order to succeed, you can't stick to everything. Some things just don't work. So in order to succeed, you have to walk away from something and know what you're walking away from. Quitting has a bad reputation, Annie Duke says, and she is out to clear its name. It is why she wrote this new book. She thinks that quitting should be thought of as a virtue, as a characteristic we want to develop. And that's true, especially for entrepreneurs who may equate quitting with failure and therefore may ignore the warning signs that their business is in trouble and in turn waste their time and their investors' money and their employees' efforts and all those things. And in fact, will make it harder for them to ultimately find the promising thing ahead. So how do we think differently about quitting? How do we know when to quit? How do we think of quitting as good? That is the conversation I am having today with Annie Duke. She is going to explain how and when it is best to quit, or at least why to leave the option on the table. Coming up after the break. Whether you need digital tools so you can bank on the go, or you need a one-on-one with an experienced business banker, with PNC Bank, you got it. PNC's business banking team is built entirely around the way you like to do business. Innovative mobile tools that let you manage your cash flow, monitor your payments, and more around the clock give you the flexibility that every business owner needs. And PNC combines those digital tools with a team of business bankers who are ready to sit down and talk about the unique needs of your business and help you develop personalized strategies to move your business forward. Learn how PNC Bank can make a difference for you and your business at pnc.com slash bank your way. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. All right, we're back. Now, here's my conversation with Annie Duke. Annie, this is such an important subject for entrepreneurs, and I'm really glad that you wrote about it. And as I was reading it, I just kept thinking back to this moment that happens so often when I am interviewing entrepreneurs, which is that they are explaining how they reached their level of success and how they got their business through some insane pivot or challenge or whatever. And they tell me that the reason for the success was their perseverance, that they did not quit on it, and that their advice to others is to keep going despite the hard times. And I always ask them, because I'm waiting for somebody to have a really good answer, 
and it turns out you are the one with the really good answer. I always ask them, but what if it wasn't the right idea? What if perseverance would have gotten you nowhere? Because in the case of whoever I'm talking to, it did get them somewhere, which is the reason I'm talking to them. But there are a lot of people who persevered into the ground and they should have quit earlier. And it's so hard to know when to do that. So I guess that's why you wrote this. Yes. So it's exactly that problem. Look, we have this issue, probably because of survivorship bias, that we see successful people. And by definition, if you've succeeded at something, you stuck to it, right? Like think about my book. It wouldn't be released if I hadn't stuck through it. And like, sometimes it was hard. I had to persevere through doing something that was difficult. And now you see the book. So it is true. Like if I've succeeded at something, I had to have stuck to it. But that doesn't mean if you stick to something, you'll succeed. And this is a really big error that we make, that we think if we stick to something, you'll succeed. And it just doesn't work in both directions. It only works in hindsight. It doesn't work in foresight. So, you know, there's this big kind of both cognitive and cultural conversation around perseverance and grit. And there, you know, grit is a virtue. It diametrically imposed, you know, opposed to the idea of walking away from something, which is a vice. So you have sort of the grit versus quit battle. And in that battle, you know, cognitively and culturally, grit just wins the day. It's the hero, you know, while quit is like cowardly soldier number three or something. <laughs> Nobody wants right, to right. Well, you, you, Yeah, you, you write, while grit is a virtue, quitting is a vice. Right. And think about just even the the aphorisms, right? Like winners never quit, quitters never win. But here's the problem, and this is what you're getting to, is that I look at I have I do not knock grit. Like in order to succeed, you are going to have to stick to hard things. And that is a, a characteristic that is worth developing a hundred percent. But also in order to succeed, you're gonna have to quit the things that aren't worth pursuing. And we should not think about that as a character flaw. We should also think that you know, of that as, as a virtue, as a characteristic that we want to develop. So we need to start thinking about kind of the conversation between grit and quit because they're the exact same choice. And that's the thing that we need to do. So here's the tragedy is that if we think that blind perseverance, that there's somehow some sort of virtue or heroism and sticking to something until you have no choice but to quit, meaning you've run it into the ground, you've got no more capital, you can't raise another dime, you're having to you know, lay everybody off, that getting all the way there is a virtue because then you stuck it out. There's something wrong. And it's wrong in several dimensions. It's wrong from the standpoint of you. If you, I have no doubt that the person who is starting a business is brilliant. Entrepreneurs are like go-getters and they're brilliant and frankly, gritty by nature. And so there's all sorts of things that they could do that could bring great value to the world, great value to themselves. And if you stick yourself in something that isn't worth pursuing, what that means is that you're not allowing yourself the other opportunities that you might also pursue. So there's a huge cost to that. Not only are you sticking to something that is no longer worthwhile, but you're preventing yourself from moving to something that is worthwhile. So that's a concept that we call opportunity cost, right? So there's opportunity cost to capital, to time, whatever. And that there is specifically this problem that while grit gets you to quit, sorry, while grit gets you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile, 
It also gets you to stick to hard things that are not worthwhile. And that stops you from being able to switch to other things that are worthwhile. So that's kind of thing number one. Thing number two is that people will say, but I owe it to my investors. But that's not true. The minute that you determine that the next dollar of your investor's money is not worth putting into the to the idea that you are trying to start up, that you're trying to develop, then that next dollar that you put in is doing a disservice to them. So you ought to return the capital and move on to something else. So that's kind of piece number two. And I think that most investors, and I work with a lot of VCs, would agree that they don't, if an entrepreneur figures out it's not worth pursuing anymore, that they would prefer that the capital get returned. And they actually have a very positive view of people who have the ability to do that because they know that that's hard. And then the third thing I always hear is I have to, I owe it to my employees. I got them into this. They've been toiling away for very little money and promise of equity or whatever. And so I owe it to my employees to keep going. And again, the minute that you discover that equity that your employees are toiling away for is probably not going to be worthwhile, right? Or maybe your employees have joined up because they want to change the world because of your amazing idea. And the minute that you figure out that's not going to happen, you should allow them to go. So you're doing a disservice to them because they're now toiling away for something that is also not worthwhile and you're trapping them in your own decision to persevere. So I, I think that this is just really important conceptually is that we have to be able to tell the difference between the ideas that are just hard but worthwhile and the ideas that are worthwhile regardless of whether they're hard. You write that quitting on time will usually feel like quitting too early. And I think that describes a lot of the kind of thinking that you were just listing out here where people say, I owe it to my investors, I owe it to my employees, because what they're saying is, I, I, I owe it to them to see this thing through and see if I can make this work. Because right now, quitting feels like it's too early. Like, like, like maybe there's still more to do. And you said that's, that's not the right way to look at it. Can, can, can you help people understand, well, I guess if quitting on time feels like quitting too early, how to quit on time? Sure. So let me just explain why quitting on time feels like it's quitting too early. So whenever we make a decision, we're making it under conditions of uncertainty. And there's two sources of uncertainty. One is just plain old luck. You know, as an example, if you started some sort of brick and mortar business right before the pandemic, you got bad luck. Couldn't have foreseen that. But there's also hidden information. There's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know, right? Like if we have an idea for a product, we have some guesses about, for example, product market fit, but we don't really know. We're going to discover that after right? We're going to start to figure those things out after launch. But we're willing to make those decisions even when we're uncertain, even when what we know is so small in comparison to all there is to be known, precisely because we have the option to quit. Because when we do find out that new information, whether it's some, you know, how luck is influencing the outcome, like, oops, there's a pandemic. Or as we start to discover information about, you know, product market fit or CAC or so on and so forth, we can now react to that information in some way. And, and sometimes that means walking away and cutting your losses. Okay, so that's kind of the setup for this. Now, why does it usually feel like we're quitting too early if we actually get it right? Well, because the decision to quit is also made under uncertainty. And as you're thinking about, should I stick to the path that I'm on or move on to something else? You're so worried about the what ifs, like, but maybe I can turn this around. Maybe I can make this work. Maybe I can actually get there. I know it's been slow going. I haven't been hitting benchmarks. I haven't been hitting targets. Our code is buggy, whatever. But maybe I can make it work, okay? As compared to, you know, switching and going off and doing something else. Now, the difference between the two is if you stick to it, you'll find out. 
That's the big issue is that then you'll get to certainty. You'll know, did it work out or not? Did I do everything I could? Was it worth pursuing? You will definitively get an answer to that. Whereas if you walk away, you're going to be left with these sort of like, well, what if I had stayed? What if I had kept going? So what that means is that at the point generally that we're willing to walk away, it's when we actually no longer have a choice. It's when we've kind of gotten to certainty because we're trying to avoid those what ifs. What do I mean by that? Well, your employees have all quit and you have no more money, right? And then you're like, okay, well, I have no more money. I guess I have to walk away. And then you're not questioning yourself if that was the right choice or not, because at that point, it's the only choice. So what we really want to do is quit at the time when we still have a choice, right? When we still have money in the bank, when we can still free our employees and help them to get into a better situation, when we still are able to move to something else that might actually be more worthwhile in an easier way. And that means that it's a forecasting problem. That means that at the point that you quit, there's still going to be a possibility that you could make it work. The problem is that it's not enough of a possibility to make it worthwhile. So if I could just for a second, because I love this story of Stuart Butterfield to help people understand what I mean by like, when you quit on time, it's really going to feel like it's too early, mostly. Yeah, Um, please. So Stuart Butterfield Uh, was on his second iteration of trying to develop an online cooperative sort of massive world building game. And this iteration was under a company called Glitch. And it was a game called Game Never Ending, which critics described as, you know, Dr. Seuss meets Monty Python. Very, very beautiful game, critics' favorite. So through word of mouth and PR, they had started to build some loyal users and they had about 5,000 really diehard users. And by that, I mean, they played 20 hours a week or more. The problem was that in order to acquire one user who would do that, they had to get the game in front of somewhere between 95 and 100 people because most of the people who played the game, over 95% of the people who played the game, played for seven minutes and left. Okay, so they've got this loyal user base. Obviously, that's going to be, they're going to generate the income, but they have a problem, which is they have to get a lot of people to come try the game. But everybody loved the game, you know, who saw it. I mean, it was beautiful. The critics loved it. So they decide, he and his co-founders and the investors, which included Andreessen Horowitz and Excel, decided we're going to do a huge marketing push. So they had done everything, as I said, through word of mouth and PR. Now they were going to do a real marketing push, paid advertising. And they do that for six weeks and that they experience about six to 7% week over week growth in new users. So this seems like fantastic news. The weekend of November 11th and 12th, they actually have their best weekend ever of acquiring new users. That was a weekend. And then on Sunday night, Butterfield goes to sleep, has a very restless night, wakes up the next morning, sends an email to his investors and his co-founders saying, I woke up this morning with the dead certainty that Glitch was over. So it's weird, right? Because they've just had this great weekend of of acquisitions. They had $6 million in the bank still. So they had a lot of runway. And he now declares that it's over. So the question is like, why? Because this really took everybody by surprise. And he explained that if they were to maintain the exact same growth, it would take 31 weeks before they got to break even. So that's pretty long. And that he felt it was absurd to assume that you could maintain that growth at that cost because you were going to start to get to the same people that you had previously gotten to and you were going to start to move out of the core gaming audience. So he just felt like this isn't a venture scale business. Like we can't make these assumptions. And so therefore it's over. So, you know, I asked him, well, did he ever, did he convince the investors and the co-founders. He said, well, I'm not actually sure. They just sort of knew if I wasn't into it, there was no point in continuing. So so they shut it down. Now I want, and he returns the capital and he frees up his employees at the moment that he feels like their equity isn't worth it. 
he frees, he mm-hmm. frees it up. Right. So that's that thing about don't, your employees are better off once you figure out it's over. So that in itself is a success. But by the way, everyone around him kind of thought he was a little nuts. He tried really hard to show them that he was being thoughtful about it because they didn't see the future in the way that he did. Because you have to look into the future and say, in 31 weeks, we have to make a whole lot of assumptions to even get to break even here. And I think that's just wrong. So he's looking very far ahead because the future that he was living in at that moment was incredibly rosy. He just saw what was to come. That's part of the problem of quitting is you have to be sort of a fortune teller in that way. You have to be a really good forecaster. Now, just as a coda to this story, because I think that that's a great story and a happy ending on its own. Two days later, Butterfield said, oh, you know, we have this internal communication device that our team seems to really like. Maybe I could develop that into something awesome. He called it the searchable log of all company knowledge and its anagram is Slack. And he asked the investors if they wanted to roll their capital into that, brought some of the employees back in and the co-founders. And obviously we know what happened with Slack. Now there's a temptation there to say that what makes that story happy is that Slack came out of it, but it's not true. Those are two separate stories. They, they are both happy. Even if he had shut it down and never done anything else, it would still be a happy story. But that also brings up that problem that we discussed about opportunity costs. Like why should you care about quitting so much? Well, because it stops you from pursuing other opportunities when you're pursuing something that's not worthwhile. Slack was under Stuart Butterfield's nose the whole time. The company already used it. They had developed it as an internal tool for Glitch, but he didn't see it for what it was until he actually quit. Then he started exploring more and saw it. So I think there's also that lesson in there, but I think it's just such a good demonstration of at the time that the expected value goes negative on you, it doesn't mean that things are really going to be bad now. You're not going to be standing at the bottom of a crevasse. You might only be halfway up the mountain at that point with nothing particularly bad happening. So other people around you aren't necessarily going to see it. And most people are not like Stuart Butterfield. Most people are going to think things are pretty darn good. And they're going to go the whole 31 weeks before they figure out that they should walk away. Don't quit on this conversation just yet. There is a lot more coming up after the break. How do you find opportunities in hard situations? And are you ready to reach your wouldn't go back moment? That's what I help you do in my new book, which is called Build for Tomorrow. It's a guide to help anyone who's going through a big change in their work or life and is full of exercises, lessons, and big concepts you need to know, like how to work your next job and how to change before you must, along with stories from the smartest people in business and the history of innovation. Stuff that, frankly, I learned while making this podcast, and then I expand it to figure out how it can help you. Because this book is designed to help you thrive. Reinvention, it's not about grit. It's a process anyone can learn. And since this book has come out, I've heard from so many people who said it helped them figure out what they really want and then go get it. Build for Tomorrow is available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook, and you can find it wherever you find books, whether that's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local retailer, or jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. Again, my book is called Build for Tomorrow. All right, we're back. Now let's pick up on my conversation with Annie Duke. So there are two things that I want to jump off from there. Number one, is to build off something that you said there at the end about what quitting enables you to do next or how it frees up your capacity. And then the other thing is to talk about a forecasting trick that people can use to understand uh, how what they're doing may be paying off or may not be paying off. So number one is just, just to reiterate that, you know, I had pulled this out of your book and I wanted to read it to you. Having the option to quit helps you to explore more, learn more, and ultimately find the right things to stick with. I thought that the phrasing here was particularly 
particularly smart because you're writing having the option to quit. A lot of people take that option off the table for themselves. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the only thing that they are focused on is making something work. And that then comes at the exclusion of basically every other opportunity around them. So can you speak a little bit more to adding quitting as simply an option on the table that people may not be taking seriously? Well, I, I think that we need to have that option because, you know, I think there's some mythology that like, if you have a plan B, your plan A won't succeed. And it's not true for a couple of reasons. One is that you're still focused on plan A. You're just sort of exploring and finding out what plan Bs are. I mean, after all, Butterfield was, did create this internal communication tool while he was devoted to Glitch, right? So there was another option that was on the table. He just wasn't thinking about it as a venture scale business. So it's not going to ruin your chances for success. But what it is going to do for you is if luck intervenes in a really bad way, then you're going to have something else that you've already started exploring. You're going to have an idea of what you might move to next, which speeds you up, right? Because you're already going to have something like like Stuart Butterfield, it took him two days for his next product, right? So I think that that's really important. Then the other thing is that sometimes the plan B turns into plan A. In other words, you happen to be exploring something and then you actually think, ooh, this is, I think this is actually better. And I think that that happens with entrepreneurs a lot, right? You have some sort of side project or something that you're, you're building to support the key product, you know, the, the, the core product. And then you realize that the, the thing you're building to support that is actually better. And that had actually, actually happened to Stuart Butterfield once before. He had another game around the dot-com crash where the game itself failed, but there was a photo sharing property of the game that turned into Flickr. So this is mm. something he was well familiar with, that having different things, around, you know, exploring different options is actually really good. And this kind of speaks to this myth that we have that if you quit, it's going to slow your progress or stop you in your tracks, but it's actually going to get you to where you want to go faster for two reasons. One is that when you are, when you do quit, you're going to have something to move to pretty quickly, but it's going to free you up to go do something that's more worthwhile, that's going to advance you toward your goals more quickly. And it's going to get you out of doing something that is actually not advancing you toward your goals. It might actually be causing you to lose ground. So the issue with, you know, why is it that it seems so obvious that when we speak it this way, that when you're in it, you won't do that is because of all sorts of cognitive biases like sunk costs, for example, where we feel like we'll have wasted our time. These issues, which I think is really true for entrepreneurs of what we call internal and external validity, consistency and identity, right? So internal and external validity is just simply like we want people to see us as good decision makers and we want to feel that way of ourselves. So we're very judgy of ourselves. We feel like other people are judging us. We want to be seen as consistent. And for entrepreneurs in particular, your identity gets wrapped up in the startup. You become sort of synonymous with the startup. And so what does that mean if you quit? Does it, we feel like it means we made a mistake to start in the first place. You know, we wasted our time. This obligation we feel like, well, I can't quit because my investors will think worse of me. What will it mean for who I am? Will it mean that I'm a failure? Like that moment that you quit is when you go from failing to having failed, particularly painful moment. And I think all of that causes us to stick in there and slow our progress down. Which is why reframing quitting, not as a outcome, let's say, but rather as you describe it as a decision-making tool. Is that a really interesting way to just frame what quitting is. It's, it's, it's an option. It's a tool. And we like tools. Tools help us build things. I mean, it's not just a, a decision-making tool. It's incredibly valuable. Because think about this. Like, this is the way that I kind of think about it. It's like, 
Look, as I said, every decision that you make to start something is under uncertainty. You're making some forecast of the future. It's very uncertain, particularly in the startup world. If you're an entrepreneur, you don't know how it's going to work out, but you're willing to start it anyway. Why? Because you're not stuck in that forever. You have the option to quit. That's actually what allows us to deal with the uncertainty of the initial decision to start. So like the example that I, I use that I think makes it very clear is imagine if the first date you went on was the last date you went on in the sense that you had no option to change your mind. You had to marry them. How hard would it be for you to decide to go on a date? How much research would you have to do? How long would it take you to sort of pull that trigger, right? Like, oh my gosh, that would be so impossible. But why is it that you can just go on dates? Well, you can just go on dates because you're going to find out information about how that date went and then you get to quit. You could, Sometimes you stick to it. Sometimes you marry the person. That's rare. And sometimes mostly you walk away from it. Well, every decision that you ever make is like dating. You're dating ideas, you're dating projects, you're dating products, you're dating majors, you're dating jobs. And the reason why we can do these things when we're so uncertain, when we have an idea and that's about it, is because we can walk away later. So the irony is that that's, you know, while that option to quit is so incredibly valuable, that once we're in it, we don't exercise the option to quit for all the reasons that we've been talking about, right? Well, what does that mean? Like I've wasted my time and effort. Waste isn't retrospective, it's forward-looking. Am I gonna waste the next dollar that I put into this thing, right? What will it mean for who I am? How will other people judge me? Will it mean that the decisions I made were a mistake? If you have ownership over something, but I know I can turn it around because my, my things are so valuable. Here's one that I think is really interesting. But if I quit, I don't know how things will turn out. And it's like, okay, but if you stick to the thing, you also kind of don't know how it turns out, but you have an idea that it's going to be bad. So you would prefer a known bad thing because you're so afraid of that moment for, of going from failing to having failed over what you think about as the unknown. But here's a trick. When you started the venture, you also didn't know how it would turn out. You were in the exact same state as you are right now when you're thinking about quitting, except that you actually know more that the path you're on is probably not the best path to choose, but we stick anyway. So right, because if you stick, if you, sorry, if you stick, you also, I mean, just, you could, the converse could be true, right? Which is that if you stick out something that doesn't seem to be working, you don't know how it would turn out if you quit and pursued the better thing. Right. That's exactly right. Except that our, we have something called status quo bias. So we don't think about that symmetrically. So we think about like sticking with something as sort of not making a decision and switching as making a decision and the losses that would be associated with switching are more painful for us. So we'd rather stick with something that we suspect might, might not work out separate and apart from the sunk cost fallacy and, and wanting sort of know how it turns out, but because the losses we incur don't feel as painful to us as switching it. Like, I'm so dumb. Why did I switch? It didn't work out. And that doesn't matter if it has a much higher probability of working out if you switch. So it's interesting. Like when you come to a decision fresh, like you're starting a new venture and you have a bad outcome, you know, you're much more likely to say, well, it was a startup and there's a lot of volatility and you know, what could I do? But when you quit, something they're already doing to switch and try something new. And that new thing doesn't work out. It feels horrible to us mm. because we feel like we somehow made like this active decision to switch away from something. Even if, if you are omniscient, you would know that that was by far the better choice. So that makes us very loss averse, like averse to the losses that are associated with switching from the thing that we're already doing. Andy, let me ask you one final thing, which I had teed up and then didn't get to, which was to offer a kind of strategic way to 
think about forecasting what's coming, which Stuart had used. I, I believe that you wrote this in that chapter where you describe Stuart's story, or maybe I'm just kind of merging these two. But anyway, I'm going to read the first part to you, and then I'd love for you to fill in the blanks here. So you write, to get the stick or quit decision right, you make an educated guess at the probability that things will go your way and the probability that things will go against you in order to figure out if the good stuff will occur enough of the time to warrant continuing on your path. Essentially, you need to think in expected value. That's a really appealing phrase. And I was just hoping you could break down how somebody could think in expected value. Yeah. So sort of two things. I want to explain how someone can think in expected value and then also give someone a practical tool for actually executing on on thinking that way. Because I do think you need some practical tools that sort of help you to sort of short circuit some of the cognitive biases that would naturally come into the quitting decision. So expected value is a little bit of a time traveling thing. It's how much do I expect to make in the long run on this decision? We think about it as having to do with money, but it's also time or happiness or any resource, human capital. So you can think about it as, as I think about some option that I'm considering, there's some set of outcomes that are associated with that. Each of those have some payoff associated with them and a probability of that occurring. If we multiply the probability times the payoff for each of the possible outcomes and then add those together, we'll get the expected value. And then we'll find out, is the expected value positive? Meaning, is this going to have positive ROI long run? Or is it negative? Am I going to lose to this decision? And it allows us to compare different options to each other. So as a simple example, we could think about flipping a coin, heads or tails, heads lands 50% of the time, tails lands 50% of the time. Uh, Let's say that you're going to win $2 if you call the coin correctly, and you're going to lose a dollar if you don't. Half the time, we know you'll call it correctly. So it's 50% times the $2 that you'll win. So that's a dollar. And then half the time, you're going to lose a dollar when you call it incorrectly. 50% times a dollar is 50 cents. So we've got a dollar in gains and 50 cents in losses. We can subtract those. And your expected value is positive 50 cents. So you're going to earn 50 cents for every dollar that you're risking. Now notice on any single try, you don't get a 50 cent outcome. You're going to either win $2 or lose a dollar, but in the over time, you're going to win 50 cents. So that would probably be a bet you'd want to take, but we could compare that to other bets. Maybe one where you were getting a dollar 50 if you won and a dollar, if you you had to give a dollar, if you lost, that would be positive 25 cents. Good lesson in that. If you were thinking about that in isolation, that would seem like a pretty good bet. But if you don't explore the other opportunity where you can make 50 cents, then you would never know to switch to that, which you would want to do. Or we could reverse it and I could make you lose 50 cents or you lose 25 cents. So in essence, that's how Stuart Butterfield was thinking. He just realized that what he was involved in was negative expected value, that for the money that they were putting into it, it was not going to give the returns and it was going to end up probably losing money. That's what he figured out. So obviously that's a little bit hard. Ideally, we'd like to do that. We'd like to map out a decision tree and actually try to guess at those probabilities and the payoffs. Sometimes we have the data to be able to do that. A lot of times we're... uh, you know, thinking a a little bit more subjectively than actual data, like what's the probability I'm going to be happy in this job versus this job. And we could take a stab at those kinds of things. But obviously that's a little bit hard. So a much simpler tool for getting the quit grit decision, right? Because sometimes, you know, sometimes you you think you should quit something and you should actually be sticking to it. And we want to be able to tackle both at the same time, which we should, because they're the same decision. If I stick to something, I'm not quitting it. 
If I quit something, I'm not sticking to it. So we shouldn't even think of them as opposing because they're the exact same thing. One of the best tools that you can use is to develop what I call a set of kill criteria. So it's basically saying, look, I'm going into this venture and you know, you have some sort of projection for when you might release V1 of the product, what CAC is going to be, growth in ARR, whatever. We can think about different metrics that are going to align with the company is on track. So when you go into that, you can actually just set benchmarks, which is think about, imagine that you start something, you say it's a year from now, and I've realized I need to shut the business down. Looking back, there were early signals that I was going to have to make that choice. What were they? And now you can think about what those are. So you can set out those kill criteria. And then essentially, if you hit them or not, is going to tell you whether you should stick or quit. You can put that on a pretty regular cadence where you can think about that going forward. And one of the the people who I think uses this really well is Ron Conway, founder of SV Angel. He says when when he sees a founder where he can see as an outsider looking in that it's not going to succeed, he'll go to the founder, he'll have a discussion with them, and they invariably say the same thing, which is, I know I can turn it around. And the interesting that he thinks that he does is he doesn't disagree with them. He says, okay, I believe you. I think you can turn it around. But then what he says is, but what does that look like? So let's see what turn it around means in the next, say, two months. What are we going to see, right? Because you say you're going to do, well, like Stuart Butterfield, maybe you're going to do a big marketing campaign or you're about to release V2 of the product and it's going to have all these new features and people are going to love it. So let's see what's that, what's that going to look like in terms of customer acquisition or growth in ARR or whatever. So he figures out what those benchmarks are. And then he says, great. So we've agreed that this is what turning it around looks like. Let's come back and talk in two months. And if you've hit the benchmarks, I'm all in. But if you've missed them, then we have to talk about you shutting it down. And he'll say, I think this is this point about opportunity costs that he's so good at expressing. He'll say, you know what? Because life is too short. Your life is too short as a brilliant person to toil away at something that isn't working when you could go do something that is going to change the world and change your life. And I want to free you up from that. And I'm not disagreeing with you that you can turn it around. But now we've agreed what turn it around means and we're going to revisit it and get you, and then we'll talk about it. It removes the value judgment from it. Exactly. And, you know, I think that one of the, the things that he does so well is that the fact is that these decisions are really hard when you're in the middle of them, right? I mean, it's, it's a little bit why we tend not to quit until it's not a decision anymore, because we have to be to the edge of the abyss when we don't have a choice. And so that's when we'll actually do it because it's hard when you're in it to walk away. That's the moment that you fail. Now, obviously, from an expected value point, your art point of view, you're already failing, but that's abstract, right? Like you haven't failed until you actually say I'm done or the world tells you you're done. So that is when it's going to be the hardest is when you're facing down that decision. Notice what Ron Conway does, does is say, I'm not going to make you face that decision down because I'm going to agree with you that you can turn it around. We're just going to look into the future. Again, expected value, right? We're going to look into the future. We're going to say, what are the benchmarks that you're going to hit that are going to show that you're going to turn around? And it pulls the emotion and the judgment and the immediacy of that decision away and allows you to come to it later more rationally, having made a pre-commitment to these kill criteria. Annie, we could keep going, but it's time to quit (laughs) because you have dinner coming and I got to take my kids to the pool. So thank you so much for your time. This is really valuable stuff. Well, thank you. Once again, Annie's book is called Quit. And also credit to Dr. John. Dr. John was the performer of that music you heard at the very beginning of the show. Never win, never quit.
And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.